This episode of the Vine Pair Podcast is sponsored by the Prisoner Wine Company. Instead of the same old, same old, give the gift of bold, unconventional wines from the Prisoner Wine Company portfolio this holiday season. From now until Monday, November 27th, you can save 20% when you purchase 12 or more bottles of select wines online, including the best-selling Prisoner Red Blend. For free ground shipping, simply use code CASE20 at checkout. Head to theprisonerwinecompany.com to shop now. From Vinepairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. Wow. We made it to the Monday before Thanksgiving. <laughs> we made it to this point? You Usually know, it's the Monday after. It's the Monday before, Joanna. I know. But the one, yeah, you've got to make it through I'm, the I'm trying to psych myself <laughs> up for travel and all the uh, cooking. Oh, where are you going? What are you making? I'm going to Auburn, Alabama. I'm excited about going to Auburn, Alabama. You know, it's going to be fun. I just, the travel is going to be a lot. Uh, I'm doing the whole meal. The whole meal? Yeah, my mom's really just wrote me in. So <laughs> You want to do it. You I love mean, to it's, cook. Yes, I do, but it's going to be a lot. But you know what's, what's nice is when you're at your parents' house and you do the cooking, they're like, we'll clean, we'll clean. I don't have to do any, so I'm going to make yeah. a massive mess. I thought you were going to say, they watch SD. That's like the big win for me. I'd much rather cook. They're going to do that, but my niece, my brother and his uh, daughter will be there too. So oh, okay. be, there's a, lo- a lot of that's going to be happening. Uh, and my brother's going to bring his new camper that I'm not supposed to call a trailer. Uh, my, because <laughs> my my brother and his wife are really into uh, the jam band circuit. <laughs> so, like, they, they got a camper to take. That's what they want to do next summer. But they brought it. They're bringing it for this weekend so that we can all go tailgating for the Auburn-Alabama game because they watched tailgaters and ah. were inspired and said we should do that. <laughs> so that's they, so fun. You know, so they're driving it from Arkansas just so that we can do the tailgating. <laughs> Are you even going to make it into the game, do you think? Do you want to make it into the game? Well, there's only, my dad only has two tickets. So it's always like a, it's like whoever gets, you know, who's going to get them. And I like going, we usually, I go with my brother, but Mm -hmm. now with everything else, who knows? But uh, making a lot of stuff. I'm going to make Kenji's spatchcocked mayonnaise turkey. Have you seen this one from last year? No. I did it. It's amazing because it browns beautifully. You rub them in. He, He likes mayo. Kenji He's likes a smart mayo. guy. Yeah, a smart guy. So making that, making some brown butter mashed potatoes. I'm making pies. Okay. I'm going to make uh, a pumpkin where you use butternut squash instead of pumpkin. You puree it, all that good stuff. I'm going to make a pecan pie that doesn't use corn syrup. Because I, I grew up on pecan pie because it's southern, right? But I've never liked pecan pie. So, there are uh, a lot of bad ones. Yeah, especially with the corn syrup. So this one uses maple syrup and oh. bourbon. Oh, nice. oh yum. Yeah, so I'm, and I made it. I made this two years in a row now, and it's really good. Biscuits, yes, and then a bunch of other stuff. What about you, Joanna? You're you're, you're making a bunch of for Thanksgiving too, right? Um, no, we kind of do like not potluck style, but everyone's responsible for stuff. So okay. I'm I'm I usually make the pies, and I'm going to make some biscuits this year. Nice Adam's recipe. Nice. Well, what pies do you make again? You um, make a crumble, right? I make an apple crisp pie. Uh, this was my grandmother's recipe okay. from a long time ago, and um, a pumpkin chiffon pie. Which is an old gourmet recipe that's very very good. So what is a what is there between an apple crisp pie and like a an apple crumble pie? I think it's the same thing. It's it, got it has it's the streusel the streusel top yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What apples? I don't know. I I, I, I do like a mix <laughs> of apples. I don't know. 
Zach, are you cooking a lot? We're going to dim sum. <gasps> really? Whoa. Yeah. I like that, actually. That's exciting. Have you always done that? No. No. no usually I cook. But uh, this year, for uh, a variety of reasons, our, our normal, uh, most of the family are going to be otherwise occupied. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a conversation for Caitlin and me about, like, you know, is it kind of worth all the effort? And we said this year, you know what, we're, we're, we're going to go to dim sum instead. Kids love it. Uh, I don't have to cook or clean. And uh, honestly, part of the reason is um, the Packers play the early game on uh, Thanksgiving and the Seahawks <laughs> play the late game. So we have kind of a narrow window so to go eat in the in middle. Anyhow. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to go to the middle. Are you, are you able to BYO at dim sum? You know, that's a good question. I don't know that we really will because it's just going to be us and the kids. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I will, I will, I, I will be at my house during the Seahawks game. Probably going to need a lot given that they're playing the 49ers and I'm not very enthusiastic about how it's going to go. But, you know, uh, it, you know, it'll be, you know, you and I might have some painful football experiences this weekend is all well, I'm saying, well, Adam. I think we could win. Anyways, uh, what I have hope you, you been do. Yeah, <laughs> me too. What have you been drinking? So I had the opportunity actually to check out a new-ish cocktail bar near me, which are two things that don't happen a lot in my life. But um, I, I ducked out of the house one evening and uh, checked out a new bar called Ruby, uh, which is, uh, again, pretty close to my house, opened by uh, one primary kind of longtime bartender here in Seattle. And I had really no idea what to expect going in other than I knew it was a new cocktail mm-hmm. bar. Uh, it's a very small kind of little jewel box space um, that was like essentially a very small one-bedroom apartment that they were like – that was rezoned because that whole block was developed and uh, they were able to put a bar in there. And, you know, I walked in on a Sunday night at like nine o'clock. There's no windows so or there is a window, but it's like got, you know, like uh, curtains and stuff. So I was like, I have no idea. Could have envisioned a lot of things when I opened the door. And in fact, it was actually like packed, which was cool. Nice to see. Had some good drinks. I think the, the standout thing to me about the bar was a it was really just the one bartender who is the guy who uh, opened it and owns it or is the primary mm-hmm. owner. And it felt very much like a lot of his ideas and and sort of vision come to life. And I had a couple of cool little touches there. Uh, the first drink I had, which uh, was made with Campari, was also served with a Campari ice cube, which mm. was kind of cool. Like branded or made of Campari? No, no, no. Like it has Campari in it, a small Ooh. amount, but it's like a red color, which is pretty cool. And then... The second one was um, made with Chinese five spice bitters, which are something that I've tried a couple times, but really hit the spot for what I was looking for. But really, the standout thing to me is that all of their drinks are thirteen dollars, and it was like this. Whoa, crazy, oh, that's amazing! Like, I know, and I was just like, "Whoa, really?" Like everything. I mean, I think if everything on their menu, I should say. I'm sure that there are things you can order. You know, if you call certain things, it's going to be more than that. But the bar is pretty small. They don't have like a ton of bottles, and it really is kind of centered around their cocktail menu and their their vibe. And it was kind of fun. You know, it was just like a, a different uh, a different experience than what I typically have when going out to cocktail bars. And again, that price point, I, you know, we'll see how long it lasts. Hopefully it does, but uh, it was refreshing to be sure. Cause I, I don't know the last time I saw a $13 craft cocktail in Seattle that, you know, wasn't uh, sort of one off on a menu as kind of the like, Oh, gimmicky. Here's our one cheap drink. But like everything on there was that. So yeah, cool. Joanna, how about you? Yeah. Uh, last week went to a wonderful dinner at Lalu with Adam and some yeah. folks. <laughs> uh, there were a lot of wines. I didn't take <laughs> many pictures. <laughs> Adam took pictures. Yeah, but, I, can go, I can go through them. Okay, but you made me take a picture of one wine in particular yep. that was delicious that I think Dave brought from his personal collection. <laughs> yes, that is true. I was a Gruner Vettliner from... Weitenberg mm-hmm. from Vader Malberg. This yep. is a 2013 bottle. That was incredible. But, but we had some 
other awesome stuff. Yeah, we had that some nice night. stuff. We had a Longa Nebbiolo from Julia Negri. We had a um, Burgundy from uh, Jerome Gallerand. We had, gosh, there was a really good Chardonnay. Is that yes. Right? Oh well, yeah. We had we had a. Uh, oh yeah, we had Ravenel. <laughs> So, yeah. so that was good. Um, yeah, it was. There was a good, there was a big group of us, but it was really fun. Bunch of wine wine people. Bunch of wine people. So, <laughs> and that was always fun because people, you know, like to, you know, order fun bottles and open them and let everyone try them. So yeah. that, it was it was a really good time. That was really good. And then went to um, Gage and Tolner this past weekend for brunch and had a clarified milk punch. That was really nice. good. It's not something I often order ever order. But it just uh, it struck me this time, and it was really delicious. So that's what I've been drinking, Adam. Yes. You're getting back from a big trip. Italia. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was in Verona <laughs> uh, for the Wine to Wine conference. And as those things go, you usually get to try some fun stuff in the evenings. Uh, so we obviously went to Archivio, which is a great cocktail bar, where I had... Yeah, anything different? Uh, I had a very good martini there. Mm-hmm. With their vermouth? No. They can't dry. They don't make- they don't make a dry. They just make a sweet. But it was Tim Specks on the martini. So, you know, I, I, I think I'd had a Tim Speck martini before. So <laughs> that was a... That was a well, That's a seven to one spec, right? Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I'm, it was... <laughs> seven to one, I think. It, was, Wait, it wasn't it, on the menu as Tim McCurdy's Specks, right? Oh, he just, no, he, just, he, discuss, he discussed it with the, with the bartenders. Yeah. And then I had some really delicious wines. Like, a lot of fun stuff. We... Again, we're with a bunch of wine people. People were, were popping really, really great bottles. We had some. We had a Pierre Peter Champagne one night. Someone ordered at one point like Rouanne Barolo. Someone else ordered uh, Emilio Pepe Cherosuolo. There was a really cool wine that I need to find the name of now. That was the wine that Keith that got Keith into wine. That happened oh. to be on one list, which was really fun. It was actually um, an Alianico from Basilicata, okay. um, and it was really cool because again. I was like, it's always fun to drink the the wines that someone sort of discovered as something they love. We had an Etna Bianco from Gracchi, which I is a producer I love. Mm-hmm. I gave this over three nights, and then I didn't take a lot of pictures. You'd have to talk to Hannah. Ha- <laughs> Hannah, Hannah, our associate editor, took all the wine pictures, so I uh, I, I missed most of them. Um, but those were those were the standout bottles for me. Um, but the other thing that I want to talk about that. Is something that came out of Wine to Wine. So Wine to Wine is a pretty large conference that happens in uh, Italy for, I would say, primarily the Italian wine business, but there is a sort of European bent to it. And while we had this conversation before on the podcast, I think it's worth bringing up again because I don't think I've ever encountered so much doom and gloom at at one conference before. And, and, And that was the, you know, the ever consistent conversation that we keep having as well about the fact that wine is fucked. I mean that's basically what it was like, right? With not, but what, but what I was shocked by is that that was the conversation that kept happening. But especially among the the generation that precedes us, there wasn't a lot of desire to do anything about it. And I think that what's that's what's become so frustrating to me when I encounter this over a time and time and time again is that there seems to be this belief amongst lots of people in wine that acceptance that wine is is not doing well that it's losing but then less of an acceptance to work with different partners to treat the market differently than you had in the past to accept that there is this 
you know, switching that goes on amongst consumers that consumers really do drink a cocktail, then have a bottle of wine and, and think about what that pricing could look like, you know, and I think what's so interesting here is that when when you think about this and then you look at other data that I've looked at separately from this, it's even more frustrating that wine just it keeps throwing up its hands. So I sat in on a, a conversation that happened earlier today with a with the leading with the manager of luxury for one of the leading spirits companies. And they showed me a ton of data around luxury. And one of the pieces of data that they showed is that over 50% of all luxury consumers earn less than $100,000 a year in the US. Wow. wow. Right, but they are luxury consumers, meaning they spend uh they they like to buy bottles that are between 100 to 300 on uh, what we what we call regular luxury and then 300 above for like super super premium luxury, right? The other thing that they showed is that, you know, over a third of those people are under the age of 35. Right? So so these are people that are willing to spend money to buy luxury liquids and the only people that are talking to them are spirits companies. And that data is so just glaring, yeah. right? And yet wine thinks that it if it doesn't work the way it's always worked, then it just might must not work anymore. It just must not be worth it. But you and it must mean that people don't drink. And so the data that I kept seeing that people were presenting to support that they were losing was well, you know, 30% of Gen Z or whatever claims not to drink. Well, again, everyone says claims, right? We also all claim to our doctor that we don't drink as much as we do. But we all drink, right? We've talked about this before that, you know, there's lots of actual, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence to support that Gen Z drinks as much as any other generation. And if you actually look at alcohol consumption over the last, like, 70 years in this country, it's remained insanely stable, if there was a huge population coming into drinking that wasn't drinking all of a sudden, that consumption would fall. And it actually hasn't. Again, consumption of alcohol in the U.S. amongst the about 80 million people that are regular drinkers has made, maintained a, an incredible stability. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also funny that a lot of people who like to cite those numbers for Gen Z yeah. like forget that a lot of them are not legal drinking age. Exactly. Yeah. Which is hilarious. So it looks like, oh, Gen Z doesn't drink, but actually a lot of them are, aren't legally able to. No. And I think it's also important to note there that not every person who reaches the age of 21 is suddenly like, now I will be a fully fleshed out drinker. Like, yeah. just because you've reached a legal threshold does not mean that you've entered, that you've decided to become like a, a drinker in a more serious way. I know a lot of people, and I think I knew, I was sure we both knew people around us who especially as they were, you know, in in college or transitioning to those phases of their life, like the amount they drink and the way they drink was very fluid. Yeah. Uh, and and so, yeah, I think that's all really important. I want to ask you guys something about this because, you know, this conversation about the sort of set in the ways nature of the wine industry in particular and a sort of uh, interest, not interest, but like an sort of constant like, well, what what, what else could we be doing? Like, it, it's not our fault. It's the children's fault that they don't want what we're selling <laughs> yeah. is is that, you know, I think we see it and hear it throughout the wine industry. It's it's not unique to a specific region, a specific country, a specific style of wine. But I do wonder if there's an element of this where you are seeing some shifts in European attitudes towards drinking and in particular towards wine that are maybe a little bit more severe than they are in the U.S. And so, yes, obviously some of these people you're talking to know they're talking to a U.S.-based, US-based publication, U.S.-based people, and that maybe the American market is less 
isn't as dire to them as they maybe see. But I do think there's something to the notion that European more uh, mores around drinking and around wine in particular are changing. Like wine is maybe not, and this is why we're seeing all this, like, you know, these huge surpluses of wine that are being disposed of and cutbacks on production and stuff like that is being driven, I think, a lot by European consumption, not necessarily by American consumption. Does that sound right? I think a little bit. I think the 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 bigger issue, though, that I have as a whole from all of this is that, like, everyone wants to cry and complain about this, but they don't want to do anything. Yeah. We've talked about this, about, like, changing changing how they approach it to appeal to a younger generation of drinkers. And I think what was interesting, you know, just in discussing this in the conference with you, Adam, and also Tim and Hannah is like, I was watching our panel live and, and heard some feedback after it that was like encouraging some of the members of the audience to read Vine Pair. Like, it's different, but you should read it. And I thought that just like really stood out to me because I think there is this especially maybe for that particular audience, this obsession with some of the more traditional legacy brands in the wine space and kind of maybe an unwillingness to kind of learn about, you know, a publisher, like a different publisher like VinePair, who actually reaches maybe the demographic that they should be after. And I think just in, in thinking about this, it's like there's this like, deep concern that you know wine is screwed and they're losing drinkers but then this unwillingness to kind of do well this this like feigned uh, you know desire to want to do stuff differently but then this uh, it seemed like there's this desperation to kind of cling to the old ways and the way that they've like they can't change how they approach marketing or the publications that they work with or the scores that they need because they don't want to give up more share so they can't like they can't actually be more creative or take a risk yeah because it seems my impression is that it seems to them that it would be like too too risky to do it they they would be giving up what they they know so well yeah i mean this is the classic sort of like example you learn when you study business cases of the cow that gets fat and goes to slaughter ultimately Mm -hmm. right because it gets so fat and lazy that it never adapts and I think this is what we just keep seeing in wine. And I, and I don't know, I guess w- what I'm curious about from, you know, I know we have a lot of smart people that listen to this podcast as well. And, and what I'm trying to figure out is, is, is it that the spirits companies just have more marketing talent at them and they are more adaptable and they go and they continue to change strategy and they're willing to, to test things. Is it that wine, you know, inherently is, old school and you know a much more uh like non-innovative product and so therefore they the people who are sort of attached to wine are unwilling because they want to be in the rooms with these people they think have power these old white men is that what it is and so they they don't want to to be innovative and look at different things because the the thing that was actually really interesting is that the only panel that i did was a conversation with the head of trade marketing aileen pesto regent from lvmh and we had a conversation about how they've continued to be so successful and one of the things she talked about was well yeah we don't we don't do the status quo we work with Brands like VinePair, we think about you know showing up where this new audience is a lot more than the than our competitors do, right? We we 
purchase a, a, a rosé and market it 100% as a lifestyle for nightlife. Like that's what we do and that's where they, that's where this new consumer wants to consume it and that's why we're growing. Right. And I think that is something that you just don't see most of. You see most of the other wine companies being like, how can we be more like them? But then when she literally is on stage telling you how, none of them want to do that. Yeah. I think because there's a fear. Yeah. Right. Like they're too afraid to to actually change their strategy and to adapt, because if they do that, then they're going to lose what they what they have and have had for a really long time. Yeah. Fear is one way to look at it. And I think that's part of it. I think some of it is just I don't say inherent to wine, but it's a it's a bigger hurdle for wine to clear, because if you think about how a lot of people are, are sort of brought into wine, learn about wine, or, or are sort of born into it in a lot of cases. It's through this, you know, passing down of tradition, these sort of whether it's, you know, appellations, varieties, styles, methods, and all of those things are a kind of received wisdom. And challenging received wisdom is hard and breaking from it is hard. And yet it's interesting to me because you see plenty of it when it comes to winemaking styles. Even you see it in certain like, you know, European regions where they're looking at planting different varieties because they're looking at things that are more climate change resistant or, or will stand up better to some of those challenges. And yet the same question of not just how to market wine, but sort of understanding wine's continued place in, you know, sort of modern lifestyles still seems it seems like anathema to these people and like it, it ties into a lot of the reporting that i've done and some of what i've written for the site of late which is like this sort of blindness to the fact that like wine is not the only drink of choice for people when they dine now mm -hmm. and it's not the only drink of choice for people to celebrate with now and it doesn't mean that they don't want to drink wine in a lot of those cases. It means that in a lot of cases, as we've been talking about, wine has not made an affirmative case for itself in most of these categories. It's just sort of said, well, of course you're going to come to the to the dinner table with a bottle of wine. What else would you possibly drink? And other categories and other places have been like, well, actually, we have low ABV, co ABV cocktails or we have you know other beverages entirely that people can enjoy. And to say that, you know, I think, again, there's just a lot of not just doom and gloom, but a sort of like willful ignorance about the fact that people are coming for, have been coming for places where wine succeeds for a while and wine has done very little to defend its turf. No, totally. I mean, again, so I'm saying there's, there's no, the luxury consumer isn't getting smaller, right? The data supports it's getting bigger. The fact and that they're people, not averse to wine. No, that's the thing. Right? Exactly. They, but, the, but I guess the thing that they are averse to is the way that wine is. Yeah. That is what they are averse to. <laughs> what do you mean? So the way that wine is all is is so gatekeepy yeah. in the way that the other things inaccessible. Are. Yes. Yeah. So for example, one of the other things that Aileen talked about that I thought was really brilliant was you will never see with any of their champagnes with anything the com the marketing conversation, the conversation with the consumer have anything to do with terroir, mm -hmm. soil, fermentation methods, nothing. It's a little too lofty. It's about the lifestyle. Yep. <clears throat> Even with Krug. Mm -hmm. I should look, if you really care about the blend of Krug, there's a QR code. You can be one of those nerds that goes online and looks it up. That's so interesting. But they will never do that publicly because they're going after the consumer that's like, huh, how do I show, how do I show my success? Mm -hmm. How do I show wealth? Even if I don't have it, right? Again, over 50% of luxury consumers in the United States make under $100,000 a year. So 
what does that look like? We talked about Dow, or you know, a few a few weeks ago. Same idea, right? What does that lifestyle look like? And they understand how to build that. And I think a lot of wine doesn't want to do that work. The work they want to do is be get positive validation from a critic who gives them a score, and then walk away and say, well, enough is done. Now the score is going to give me the audience that I'm looking for. And for the most part, it won't. And it's very lazy. And the other liquids out there are doing a much better job of, you know, saying to to the consumer, this is who you are if you consume our product. Even, you know, let's say, let's talk about it, a lower brand in terms of price point, like High Noon is doing a great job of positioning itself as the luxury seltzer in the seltzer space and saying, hey, if you drink us, you know what, actually? You're a connoisseur of, of hard seltzer because this is based with high quality vodka and and really well done flavors, and we're priced a dollar more expensive than all the other seltzers. So you can show your friends that like you pay for quality. It's very smart, and that is that is what their marketing messaging does. Yeah. So you know whether they do it overtly or it's what seeps into the culture. Mm-hmm. That is what people think of. There's so many people when we were on those college campuses that said to us. Oh yeah, my friends that drink high noon like have better taste because they fancy. drink high noon. They're fancier. Yeah, that's an amazing position to be in as a brand. Yeah. And the majority and, and wine has that ability, right? It's an expensive product for the most part. There are lots of luxury entry points. There's lots of ways for it not to feel inaccessible. But I think, unfortunately, the market as a whole has decided that they're going to play the same game they played since the 70s and then cry about it that it's not working and assume that that means that it, that must mean that nobody wants to drink wine anymore well and the other new game is that that's a problem the other new game in town is uh, just a different kind of gatekeeping right yep. um shout outs to a listener who wrote in we won't say more about what you wrote in but we i think we all agree with you appreciate your your feedback always uh for us but you know i think there's an, a way in which it's just a different kind of gatekeeping from a slightly different direction, which is essentially you're not cool enough to enjoy this. Yep. Not you're not not, and it's a different kind of gatekeeping to be clear than you don't know enough to enjoy this, or you're not sophisticated enough to enjoy this, or you're not wealthy enough to enjoy this. Because we all know that that one doesn't keep anyone out. Right. Is you're not cool enough for this, and and unfortunately, a lot of wine has gone down that path, whether of their own volition or not. And that's a that's another kind of very quickly self defeating path because you as you said adam and i think very uh importantly none of these other categories have any interest in or liquids have any interest in keeping anyone from drinking yeah i mean they sometimes have more you know they have higher price points they have certain kinds of uh images and a a certain kind of valence to them that may appeal to a certain kind of drinker or not but they're never going to say oh you're as you said they, they you know even lvmh with their wines doesn't talk about any of the stuff that might make people feel either not smart enough or not cool enough to drink the wine they want you to drink the wine and they want you to feel cool by drinking it, not uncool because you can't drink it or whatever. Yeah. I want to say something, and I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me or not. I don't really care. <laughs> I think we talk a lot about natural wine and the natural wine movement. And I think what strikes me is that, you know, as whatever gatekeeping in its own way that movement was, the reality is that natural wine has appealed to the younger generation of drinkers because it's crafted a lifestyle around it, right? And so to drink this wine says something about you in a way that other wine, whatever, fine wine, non-natural wine, unnatural wine hasn't done so well. And I think what you said earlier about investing in 
the marketing of your wine and the lifestyle of your wine, I think, is the key. That so many brands have just not been able to do or have been unwilling to do because it takes work. But I think you said earlier is important because I think all of all of the marketing that these wines have already about yep. terroir, practices, whatever, that's all still very important. Yeah. I think you still need to have totally. that. But it can't be the only thing that you do to sell your wine. I think the other thing that, you know, you see with spirits and with, with beer to some extent, but definitely with spirits, is the willingness not only to work with – I mean, Vine Pair is 10 years old. Like, we're about to turn 10 years old. You know, we're not a new publication at this point. Yeah. Not, but not even willing to work with newish publications that are that are, that are proven. And, and I'm not talking about, like, you know, a few people that launched a blog – that you know we're not new yeah exactly the title new exactly but we're exactly but i'm talking about (laughs) you know younger demographic publications but also a willingness to show up in other spaces that aren't traditional so one of the other conversations one of these parts of this conversation i was also having is you know spirits is really really good at showing up and being partners with High-end retailers, right? So um, I was someone told me a story about how you, if you go to the um, the Gucci boutique in LA, and this person saw lots of young people there, mm-hmm. they will make you a cocktail made by a certain brand's portfolio from a, from a, a of products, and they can do that. because It's not really a bar, right? So the the brand can just pay to be there, right? It's not huh. like the brand paying to own a bar in New York City, which is illegal, and say that this is only going to be a bar made with the liquors of this brand. But they can do that at a store. You see, I remember Billy Reed. We all know I like Billy Reed, the designer, has had historically bourbon partnerships where in all of his stores, if you go in, it's that bourbon brand that he pours for you. If you're shopping for a dress shirt, a suit, et cetera, you know, Rag and Bone has historically had partnerships with Stella Artois. Like those are really smart places for the brands to be. Wine doesn't do that. Right. Right. And wine could do that. Why is everyone... Maybe champagne does that, right? I have to assume. Champagne does it. That's it. And then there's all these spaces that wine leaves open. So, for example, wine says, oh, someone's there, then we can't be there too. So, Formula One is this weekend, right? I know you're a big F1 fan. Sure. Right? Uh, (laughs) Drive to survive, Joanna. (laughs) Uh, You told me you were a Formula One fan. Uh But one of the things that is, is really interesting about Formula One is that while there is an official spirit sponsor of the organization mm-hmm. there are also spirit sponsors attached to drivers there are you know there are spirit sponsors attached to experiences that happen around formula one the only wine that i could tell you is associated with formula one is ferrari trento doc yes they're it and the and the reason i think that that's the case is because other wine brands think oh if they're there we can't be there too no spirits brand is thinking that no spirits brand is thinking oh well because these three spirits are there as the official of formula one we can't associate with a driver mm-hmm. right patron is the sponsor of a driver and they are yeah. there just as big as all the other spirits brands are. And so, again, I think that there's just this this lack of a willingness of, of, of being creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, you know, give shouts out here for a sec to Gallo with Barefoot. Yeah. You know, putting a bunch of money into their NFL sponsorship. Yeah. Right? A place where, where wine had not been. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's done for Barefoot sales. And obviously, you know, Barefoot isn't necessarily the, something that – Everyone is going to look at it as like, oh, yes, let's follow their lead, even though they probably should when they can in certain ways. But that's exactly your – I think that the point you guys are both making is a really good one, which is that 
one of the things wine needs to do, and it's hard in certain cases because wine is less of a monolith. There are fewer really, really big brands and really, really big producers than there are in some of these other categories. But the ones who are out there and even some of the medium-sized ones would yeah, be very well served. I also want to relay one other anecdote that I think is relevant here, which is uh, coming back to something that Dave Infante talked about on uh, Taplines a while back, which is, you know, you talk about being present and there are ways to be present in, in scenes that are both big and showy, like, you know, big time TV placements in NFL games. And there are ways to be present in scenes that are way more organic and way more just kind of a part of it. And he talked a lot about it with PBR and and the marketing of PBR and how PBR had a team of people in cities and their job was one of their jobs is basically like, oh, there's a cool concert happening or an art, you know, an art opening or something like fucking get in the car or in a cab or whatever with like as much PBR as you can carry and just be there and give it away. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how legal is some of that? Well, you know, good question. But, you know, get, you know, don't get caught. No, no, no harm, no foul, I guess, in their eyes. And there are ways to do it that are more legal, to be clear. And wine could be in some of those places, because the thing we keep saying and we keep coming back to and to bring a, a note of positivity to this is, you know, I, I was just at a at a trade tasting here in in Seattle, and I was talking to some people on the retail side and talking to people about you know what they're seeing and you know drinking trends as much as they can from their kind of boots on the ground perspective. And you know the thing I kept hearing was like you know they see plenty of people in their twenties and thirties coming in buying wine. What they're looking for may vary. You know some of them have some idea what they're looking for. Some of them need guidance. But it is again not the case that these are lost generations, so to say, and they're and they're uninterested in drinking or uninterested in drinking wine. But it's that if you don't meet them in the places they are, if you don't give them the products they're looking for, if you don't message them and market them in the ways that they are looking for, you will miss them. But they're not averse to wine, and they're not immune to wine's charms. No, and I I think, again, people all have different entry points to it, and we have to be open to all those different entry points. Maybe it's a gallery party. Again, a place where tequila has done very well. There are Casa Dragones. That's how they built their brand. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, the owner was a massive art collector, and so they did a bunch of things at Gagosian, the really high-end galleries. Mm -hmm. And then, guess what? Casa Dragones is, you know, placed at uh, the Modern, and they make sure their team sells it in there, and their team sells it into the restaurant, you know, down at at the Met, and all that kind of stuff. It's very strategic. And again, I just don't think wine thinks about the strategy that well. I also don't think wine thinks about the strategy in terms of, like, you know, what category of restaurants we there's like, I want to be a glass pour everywhere. I do think glass pours are an amazing place to build brands for wine. I really do. But like, there's no, there seems to be no strategies. Like I want to be on as many glass pour lists as possible instead of, you know what, we're going after a specific, you know, type of person. They eat at these kinds of restaurants. These are the glass pours we're going after. And again, I don't know if this is a talent thing, if this is a creativity thing, if this is just because wine is seems to be so much more stuck in its ways than inertia yeah yeah it just and then there's such a there's such a negative so the other thing that i want to talk about before we go is in wine because i want wine needs to stop it i never hear other spirits brands speak about their competitors in a well they're big and we would never be like them so you know so fuck them basically there's only a we they're being successful we want to copy them but I hear a lot amongst wine professionals, oh, well, that, that company's successful. Well, they're big. And we all know who, who I'm talking about right now. They, they all want to talk negatively about three or four of the really big wine companies. But those are the only companies that are trying stuff. 
and you need them because if they're not successful, you're not going to ultimately be successful. And it's very that's very interesting to me. Or oh, they do this, well then we're not going to do this because we don't we don't respect their brands. Our brands are much better. Our brands are are made by you know our brands are legitimate wine. Right, like it calls their authenticity into question. I, I, I never hear like a tequila producer who says to me, oh well if if this low end if this cheaper tequila is successful doing these strategies we're not going to do them too because we're a more expensive tequila they say oh this is working we're going to try to do this too well from like a marketing point of view not like a production yeah, right and, and we'll and we'll get the consumer to trade up to us sure but if, if if this tequila is reaching a consumer base through a strategy that seems to be working we're at least going to try it mm-hmm. and see if we can get them to spend more instead of oh well if they're doing the strategy that must mean that the consumer likes cheap tequila so therefore we're not going to go after this, that consumer I, I never hear that they try it because, again, what is the stat I've said now 20 times on, the, on this specific podcast? 50% of luxury purchases happen by people who make less than $100,000 a year. So this idea that there's these bands of consumers and they only sit in one or the other is not true. Think about it. Just think about it. If you look at what people wear, there's a lot of people who probably should not, based on their you know how much money they make, go and buy Gucci and Vuitton, et cetera. But they do because these products – are beautiful and they like them and they want to own them. And so that's what they spend their money on. Maybe that means that in 20 or 30 years, our country's not going to have a lot of people with savings mm-hmm. to be able to retire. <laughs> but it also means that right now there's an opportunity for wine and wine has to take that opportunity and embrace the fact that there's a group of people in this country that are willing to spend the money. They just have to be willing to talk to them. And right now they're not. But they also have to understand why they're spending the money and i think that's a huge gap too no because they think that they think that the second you want to become a luxury consumer wine thinks you immediately subscribe to wine spectator rob report cigar aficionado and whiskey advocate and that's just not true i i got nothing to add adam you laid it out (laughs) wow yep zach doesn't have anything to add Well, besides the last 35 minutes of conversation. (laughs) anyways let us know what you think hit us up at podcast at vinepro.com always appreciate the feedback also, we tried to fix the sound this week. We've heard a little bit. So let us know if you think the sound sounds better. We know some people thought it was a little bit quieter. We, we got our engineers in here working on the template. So uh, <laughs> let us know at podcast.vimepair.com as well. And uh, Joanna and Zach, I'll talk to you on Friday. Uh, no. Have a great Thanksgiving, I'll talk to you everyone. Monday. We're not going to have an episode on Friday. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Or are we going to have an episode? Did we discuss this? No, we didn't. We are, we are having an episode. We're going to have an episode because <laughs> we worked that hard for you. Yeah. And <laughs> see you guys then. Black Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vinepair staff, 
and everyone who's been involved in making Vinepair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Visit theprisonerwinecompany.com to explore all of their offerings this holiday season, and remember to use code CASE20 at checkout.